Well, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts, and from Pentecost until this moment, the church grew with relatively little opposition. It's unclear how much time had passed, but after Peter and John healed the crippled man outside of the beautiful gate in chapter 3, adversity arrived. They had to have known it would come sooner or later. The man the apostles chose to follow had been crucified, and the people who had sentenced him to death were not only still alive, but still in power. The priests and the rulers of the temple had lobbied Pilate for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and his friends became instantly guilty by association. They went into hiding, and there the early Christians wrestled with the decision that every Christian since then has also had to answer. Do you stay silent on Jesus? and avoid ridicule or worse, persecution? Or do you talk about Jesus openly and accept whatever comes your way? The apostles felt compelled to speak about Jesus. His love for them drove them to it. In these early chapters of Acts, it seems like Peter took almost anything as a cue to preach a sermon. You turn the page and there's Peter again, climbing up on some tall object so the crowds can hear him better. His latest sermon was delivered in the temple, immediately following the healing of a crippled man at the gate to the temple. After Peter healed the man, the man got up and, jumping up and down, bounced into the temple, as if his top was made out of rubber and his bottom was made out of springs. In Tigger-like fashion, he was causing quite a commotion. When strolling in after him, came Peter and John. And turning to see Peter and John, the man bounced up to them. And the text tells us that he clung to them. He wrapped his arms around the two of them and refused to let go. It was quite a scene. And as everyone stood around rubbernecking instead of praying, Peter saw a window of opportunity open. He burst into a sermon. He told the crowds about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he attributed the healing of the crippled man that everyone recognized and knew to be crippled to the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. After overcoming death and the resurrection, Jesus withdrew to a place beyond the reach of death, where he now powerfully works in the lives of those in this world still. The crippled man was healed not by Peter or John, but by Jesus Christ. He is not dead, he is alive, and he's at work even now. Verse 4 of our passage this morning tells us that it was a a sermon that captured the, the hearts and the minds of the hearers, but it infuriated the priests and the leaders of the temple. While Peter and John were still talking with the people, verse 1 tells us that the priests and the rulers of the temple walked by and were much annoyed by Peter talking about the resurrection of the dead. They were annoyed enough to arrest not only Peter and John, but also the joyful, no longer crippled man. They threw them in jail for the night to await a trial in the morning. But why are they so angry? That's what Peter wanted to know at the trial the next day. In verse 9, Peter wonders aloud if they're seriously being tried for a good deed done to a crippled man. Well, no, not really. The text is full of allusions to the real cause for their anger. They're angry because they feel threatened. Verse 1 tells us that they are much annoyed because Peter was preaching about the resurrection of the dead, specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, whom they had crucified, and the people were listening. 
The people were becoming Christians by the thousands. 5,000 were said to have believed Peter's testimony about the resurrection of Jesus Christ that day alone. The priests and the rulers of the temple were an elite, influential group in the first century world, and they loved power more than anything else. They loved power more than truth itself. But there's no power without people. And they were hemorrhaging people without any clear way to stop the bleeding. Jesus was a serious threat to their position. And when he was still alive, they bemoaned their fate. Look, the whole world is going after him, they complained to one another. But when Jesus was put to death, they thought they had eliminated him as a threat. But now they were finding out they were wrong. Here are these men claiming that Jesus is alive and that they saw him and touched him and ate with him. And the once crippled man, now able to walk, was evidence that their claim is true, that he is alive. Healing this man is just the sort of thing that Jesus would do too, and the priests knew it. The text tells us in verse 22 that he was 40 years old. It's an interesting detail to throw in there. Who heals a 40-year-old man? In the first century world, the life expectancy, sorry Jake, the life expectancy wasn't much more than 40 years old. (laughs) People weren't expected to live much beyond that. Healing a 40-year-old is a waste, but it's the sort of irrational thing that only Jesus would do. No one is a waste to him. While he was alive, he loved the people that everyone else ignored. He ate with tax collectors. He touched people with infectious diseases. Healing a 40-year-old man is exactly the sort of thing Jesus would do. The priests knew it. And the priests and the leaders of the temple were terrified of Jesus. They're not scared of Peter and John. They're scared of Jesus. Look at the first question they asked them during the trial in verse 7. By what power or by what name did you do this? They knew Peter and John weren't powerful enough to heal a crippled man on their, own, on their own power, but they wanted to know who was. Peter confirmed their fears. Let it be known to all of you, he said to them in verse 10, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And it was Jesus whom the priests and the leaders of the temple were trying to silence even though they didn't know where to find him. They released Peter and John with the command to no longer speak about Jesus. They don't tell Peter and John to no longer speak. They don't tell them even to no longer heal people. They probably wouldn't mind if they healed them. But just don't talk about Jesus. No more of this Jesus stuff. He's the real threat. They were afraid of him because they loved themselves and their reputation, and their power, and their position. If the people went after him, they'd lose everything. And if they followed him, then they'd have to give it all up. The leaders in the temple didn't believe that the resurrection from the dead was even possible. They'd taught that for years. If they were to now admit that Jesus rose from the dead, then they'd have to contradict themselves. They'd have to humble themselves and repent, but that's not something they were willing to do. You would think that the evidence of a man healed by Jesus from beyond the grave would be enough to introduce doubt in their minds that perhaps he was alive. But their love of their position blinded them to the truth and kept them from the self-sacrifice that Jesus demands of his followers. You see, Jesus has this amazing ability to identify that thing in your life that you love more than him. That thing that 
keeps you from him. It's called an idol. And after identifying it, he threatens it to give you the opportunity to prove to yourself and to God and to the world and to the angels and saints that watch from the heavens that you love him more than you love it, whatever it may be. Will you abandon the thing you love or will you abandon him? Your heart doesn't have room for both, so you have to choose. And only you know what you've come to love too much. What is that thing you can't do without? What in your life makes you angry when it's threatened? Is it your plans for your future? Or your rest and your comfort? Is it your reputation? Can you not handle being misunderstood? Do you struggle to celebrate the success of others even if it's, at, even if it's not at your own expense? Is it some material thing that you return to over and over throughout the day for comfort? Is it money? What is it? And when it's threatened, how will you respond? The saints of old practiced the discipline of fasting from these loves to ensure their response would be to cling to God when the thing they loved was threatened. They knew they could do without it because they had already intentionally chosen to do without it. And so they were willing to go without in order to have God. He was the most important thing for them, and they trained that into their hearts and into their bodies. John the Baptist was faced with the same threat that the priests and leaders of the temple faced. If you recall, John the Baptist began his ministry before Jesus, and he acquired quite a following. Disciples who listened to his teaching and hung on every word and helped share the work of his ministry. But when Jesus arrived, the disciples shifted their allegiance and disappeared. The Gospel of John tells the story of John standing around with a couple of his disciples when Jesus walks by. And John points out Jesus to his disciples. And they literally walk away from John at that very moment and follow Jesus instead. John was left there alone. He was hemorrhaging disciples as they all began to follow Jesus. And it was a threat to his position and his power. But when one of his disciples alerted John that Jesus is baptizing people in the Jordan River and all the people are going to him, John proved his love for Jesus was greater than his love for himself. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's what he told this panicked, frantic disciple. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's hard to describe the, the self-abandonment of that statement. John was willing to give up everything so that Jesus might grow in glory instead. It's awe-inspiring, much as the boldness of the apostles produced astonishment on the day of their trial. Peter and John were being tried by the very men who pressed Pilate for Jesus' crucifixion, Annas and Caiaphas. Luke mentions them both by name in verse 6. And yet Peter and John did not shy away from talking about Jesus, even shaming Annas and Caiaphas by reminding them that they had crucified Jesus, but God had raised him. And when they were threatened to no longer speak Jesus' name, Peter and John dismissed the threat out of hand. In verse 19, they basically tell them, do what you want with us, but we're going to keep talking about Jesus. Their very lives were threatened, and yet they viewed it as an opportunity to express their love for Jesus. They were willing to give up everything because he gave up everything for them. And the everything he gave up was far greater than what they had to give up. Jesus gave up the, the comfort of heaven in order to suffer for our sins. 
so that through faith in him, we who deserve the torments of hell might only know the comforts of heaven. He lived our story, descending into hell even, in order to change the ending by ascending into heaven, having overcome death in the resurrection. He willingly, even joyfully, did this for us. And now, beyond the grave, he is giving great boldness to his saints in this world as we deny ourselves and the things we love in order to have him alone. Make no mistake about it, the the boldness that Peter and John showed at the trial, though, was not their own. The text tells us in verse 13 that the people who heard them address the court at their trial were astonished at their boldness because they saw that Peter and John were uneducated, ordinary men, common men, some say. Boldness was a character trait attributed to philosophers and great orators in the Roman world, not fishermen. Peter and John were common and uneducated, but they had been with Jesus, the text tells us. Jesus was the source of their boldness. When Peter stood up to speak at their trial, Luke explicitly says in verse 8 that at that moment, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus made them bold. It was not a character trait peculiar to Peter and John. It's the work that Jesus is doing through his Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians in this world. He's making us bold. And as he puts us in situations where we must decide between our own comfort and his glory, he will provide us with the strength necessary to declare with Peter and John, do what you want with us, but we're going to keep talking about Jesus. And to declare with John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's a boldness that comes with the realization that Jesus became more powerful after his death. We worship a God who's beyond death's reach, and he's able to restore all that we lose in this life. What can the world do to us? What does it benefit a person to gain the whole world and yet sacrifice their soul? It's a terrifying realization to the priests and leaders of the temple who were trying to silence Jesus that he's still alive. Unable to silence him, they they try to hide the evidence of his life. They try to silence the Christians who insist on talking about Jesus. We are the evidence of the life of Christ. Exhibit A in the lawsuit that God has filed against the idols vying for the attention and hearts of the world. In their private discussions in verse 16, the priests and leaders of the temple admitted there's, there's no denying a, a notable sign has been done. A man once crippled now walks. And God used the change that took place in the body of this crippled man to force the priests to a decision of faith. Will they believe that this is the work of Jesus and give up everything they have, or will they refuse to believe their own eyes and deny Jesus instead? And the boldness of Peter and John had the same effect. Peter was a man who once denied Jesus to a little girl, but now with self-abandon, he grants the court permission to do what they want with him. Having denied Jesus once already, he wasn't going to do it again. Jesus had changed him and emboldened him, and it was this boldness that God used to force the priests and the leaders of the temple to a decision of faith. How can these fishermen be so brave? How can they display the attributes that are found only in our noblest philosophers? It was a question they refused to answer because the answer could only be Jesus. And Jesus is doing the same with you. He is turning you into the evidence of his life beyond the grave. You are his handiwork. 
And as the world experiences your growth under the care of Jesus, as the world watches you learn to forgive when before you harbored bitterness, as the world watches you rejoice over others when before you resented their success, as the world watches you grow more genuine where before you were only biting and sarcastic, as the world watches you become willing to die to yourself, as the world sees you grow in holiness, and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control as Jesus does this work in your life as he has promised to do the world will be forced to deal with the evidence and you must tell them that Jesus is alive and he promises life to all who live in him by faith for as Peter testified in court that day there is no there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among us by which, we must be, by which we must be saved. May you believe that with every fiber of your being and may the world come to believe through you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.